The Word of God comes to us from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. May he richly bless the reading of his word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatening to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. I do want to acknowledge that uh, if you are returning and I haven't had a chance to see you, uh, I think there's a little bit of a, a family reunion going on this morning. Uh, Donald and Sohi Chu, where are you? I saw you earlier. Oh, there you are. Wait, did you, were you over there? No. Someone's over. Oh, I, that is. That's right. I kept looking for you over there. Welcome back. All right. How are you? Doing well? All right. Are you on Hawaiian Standard Time yet? As you know where you are? All right. Okay. Anyone else here visiting that I should acknowledge? I see a big group here from Oregon, Salem, Oregon. Welcome all the Oregonians here. Hope you brought some Loganberries with you. And so, good to see you. All right. I won't draw any more attention to you. All right. It's good to see you. Um, I heard that Craig Matsuura is on the island as well. Some of you who have been here with, on the, at the church for a while, you'll remember that name, but I don't see Craig here. All right. Very good. Well, the Word of God comes to us from this uh, classic text. I'm reminded of how many of you probably know the text well, and what a challenge it is to preach on a text that everybody thinks they know about. All right? That's why, uh, by the way, uh, you pray for the preacher on Sunday, Easter Sunday. That's, a, that's the toughest message to give. I know what happens. Right? I mean, I, I know. So... Um, so we really are trying in this time, this season of Lent, it may be new to, to us or new to us as a church, but we're, we're trying to celebrate this idea or at least acknowledge, I shouldn't use celebrate, but acknowledge that our Lord went through a time of testing in the wilderness and we're connecting with his life and we're connecting with his suffering and we're asking the Lord to, to sanctify us uh, in, a, in a more specific way during this time. We don't want to just be driving to church on Easter morning and then go, oh, hey, yeah, that's right, it's, it's Easter. We don't want that experience. We want the experience of being led through the wilderness, experiencing our need of salvation over and over as these weeks unfold. And so these next six Sundays are really committed to that. And Jonah is really just a foil. He's just a, he, we're just, he's, he's being used Uh, in our text, to speak to our hearts and, of course, our need for a Savior. And so, uh, will you join me in prayer as we think about the Word of God? Let's ask him to open it up to us. Father, you are the 
you are the author of the greatest stories. The devil has no stories because he does not have a redeemer. There's no real drama in the world because there is no savior apart from the word of God. Father, I thank you that I can be here among my friends and talk about your mercy. Father, it's a familiar text, and I pray you'd break through to our hearts and speak to, speak to us. Help us to honor the purity of your worship. May you be active among us and that your name would be glorified and that we would become true members of your church, by the, not only by faith, but through obedience. I pray that you will help us to move with you into this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, the shortest outline for the book of Jonah, the one that I, could, uh, that I know, it goes like this. God says go. Jonah says no. God says oh. <laughs> keep that. It doesn't, doesn't get any more difficult than that. Now, if you think it's a fish tale, it is a fish tale. A man is swallowed by a large fish. You can read about it. It's coming up very quickly. And it's a common idea that some well-meaning person put this story together. It's kind of a fable. They have a moral lesson to tell. And so we're not supposed to take this seriously. We're a lot more sophisticated than that. We live in a world of cell phones and microwave ovens, after all. So certainly there's a well-meaning story behind it. And if you wrestle with that, there's lots of arguments in favor of the inspiration of this story. It's a real story. We believe it's a real story. We believe it's, it is part of our Bible. But if you struggle with it, there's a simple way to, to, to think about this. And that is that Jesus openly talked about a person named Jonah. He was real. The Old Testament canon, the collection of those 39 books, was received as inspired by God. Jonah is in there. And so Jesus acknowledged Jonah, in fact, says that the sign of Jonah, this is Luke eleven twenty nine and Matthew twelve thirty nine. the sign of Jonah would be the significant sign given to an, to an unbelieving generation. So Jonah it plays, a, plays a significant role in the ministry of Jesus and the work of Jesus. In fact, when you think about, if, you have a, if we have trouble, and we may have trouble with someone being swallowed by a fish and surviving three days, well, the core of the Christian faith is actually connected to a far greater event. Someone is in the grave for three days, and they rise out of the grave. So we are, we are vitally curious and interested in a miracle, and that miracle saves us. So the time period for the book of Jonah is roughly around 786 or 746 in the mid-century, excuse me, the 8th century B.C., okay? So this, these are the times when Israel was a kingdom in the north and Judah was a kingdom in the south. A little, little Bible story study time now. So after King David, there was Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south, roughly. And the, the, the northern kingdom was always being threatened by prophets, uh, I'm going to bring a pagan nation and judge you, repent and obey. And the northern kingdom did not listen. And God used the Assyrians, Assyrians 
to come in and womp on the northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, Sumeria is the uh, capital of, uh, of the northern kingdom. It is conquered by the Assyrians, and Assyria's capital was Nineveh. Jonah is right in the middle of all this time period. And um, the, the story of Jonah... Uh, really has a number of surprises to it. You can't read very long into it, a couple sentences into it, and all, right away we have a disobedient prophet, we have surprises throughout the narrative. And that was meant for the original audience. Remember that our Bible did not fall out of the sky, bound in leather from Zondervan. Okay, just boom, lands on a rock, and then we oh, look at that, how interesting. The, the Bible comes in a more organic way, there are prophets, and there are, there's, there's recordings of their, of their ministries, and this is bound in books, scrolls in the synagogue, and then this becomes then um, something that we have now, and um, there's no endless, there's, there's an endless supply of Bibles. There's all kinds of Bibles. There's the young adult Bible. There's all kinds of Bibles, and that's all money-making schemes, by the way. But uh, this, this Bible had an original audience, so... The Bible was written to someone else, but written for you. The Bible was written to someone else, written for you. So we're, we're overhearing a story inspired to someone else. And the problems and the difficulties and the hardness of heart that you may see in Jonah resonate with the audience. The audience is ingrown. They are Israelites. They are people who have lost sight of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant for the nations. Abraham, through you, Genesis 15 and 17, through you, Abraham, I will bless the nations. I'll set up a temporary kingdom in Israel, but I will bless the nations through you. The audience who read Jonah and experienced all its surprises are surprised, first and foremost, at the hardness of the prophet's heart. And that resonates and connects directly with the original audience. Deep-seated nationalism and unwillingness to go into the dark places where God is willing to go. And the original audience was to embrace God's call to extend mercy to the nations. They were prejudiced toward outsiders. It was an us-for-and-no-more kind of club. And it couldn't be more clear that Jesus actually resonates and restates one of the themes of the Old Testament, Abrahamic covenant. You are to love these nations and extend, even in a personal way, you are to love your enemies. And so it's an extraordinary book, and it opens with this this quite shocking news that God comes to Jonah, tells him specifically of the evil of the Ninevites. It has come up to my face. That's the idea. It is, I am, I am, uh, it, it, it will not uh, be something I'm now going to overlook anymore. That's what God's saying. And I want you to go preach against this great city. Now, Jonah responds, of course, and he uh, doesn't, doesn't have any concern about preaching to the Ninevites. He wants judgment. He doesn't want to threaten them with judgment. He wants judgment. These are his enemies. These are Israel's enemies. The Ninevites were brutal. 
The Ninevites were uh, ruthless when they conquered another nation. Uh, they did things like pile up the skulls of those that they had slaughtered and, 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 and put them in nice little pyramid shapes at the gates of the city. The Ninevites. And Jonah says, you know, in his heart, he has an aggressive strategy that God should adopt for the Ninevites. And uh, we don't want Ninevites anymore on the earth. So uh, Jonah now is reasoning in his heart. And what's really cool about the book is that we have kind of an omniscient narrator. In other words, there's someone like, you can see the whole story. It's right here. Right here. In fact, in my Bible, the whole story just takes two pages. The whole thing is right here. And you have an omniscient narrator guiding you through it. And the first thing we are shown by this narrator is the disconnect in Jonah's heart. Would you look at verses 1 and 2? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So immediately, he, uh, he, uh, Jonah has fairly smooth connections. Um, he's got his ticket. He's got his boat ride. And uh, he needs a heart change. He has a, there's a significant disconnect between, with Jonah, Jonah's heart and, uh, and God's. And I want you to know up front one of the key themes of the book of Jonah. And here's what's going on. You guys sort of get it, right? Ah, I get the flow of it. There's a fish coming up. He's going to end up in Nineveh. He's going to preach against it. It's going to be repentance and all that. And something's going to be going on while we're going through this series because you're going to have this troubling sense, what's up with this guy? I mean, I get it. He finally obeys. He finally goes into Nineveh, and he has this special subterranean experience. I, I, I get that. What's up with Jonah? You're going to ask that several times in the coming weeks. What's up with Jonah? And here is what's up with Jonah. Jonah is the Old Testament equivalent of the older brother in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the parable of the two sons. Jonah is the older brother. He is prejudiced. He is he, is, he doesn't want to come to any party that celebrates someone's recovery from moral failure. He doesn't like the morally challenged. He doesn't think he's morally challenged. He is the Old Testament equivalent of the older brother. And he has a twisted, distorted, disconnected heart. He is not connected to the merciful God who is merciful toward him and merciful toward all of Abraham's children. They have no moral status above anyone else. Not a single Jew in history has any kind of moral status over anyone else. Not a single Gentile has any moral status over anyone else. Not a single Christian has a moral status over a non-Christian. And this is what we forget. And how does this come to the surface? Well, one of the things that comes to the surface is that we just don't want to engage and follow our God. So there's a kind of a fear-driven disobedience. We're afraid of the things. Let me ask you, are you afraid of something God would ask of you to do? Or perhaps better, does ask of you to do? It's hard to nail down our rebellion because outwardly we may look pretty good. 
But the inward conformity has to happen first, where we love the mercy of God, and now we know that the mercy of God is for others. Now, we may never, through travel, express our disobedience. That's Jonah. <laughs> he, he's a, a, a traveling disobedient one. We may never, through travel, express our disobedience. But we have travel on our minds. We travel in our minds. We don't travel with our God. We are making moral evaluations of other people continually in our mind, and there is a disconnect between ourselves and God's heart. The mercy of God, David Pallison writes, the mercy of God, listen, this is very insightful. He says the mercy of God is the highest form of love. Because it just doesn't think about doing something. The mercy of God does something. It is constructive mercy. God is calling Jonah to have constructive mercy toward the Ninevites. Go, give them my word, and let's see what happens, as it were, right? Constructive mercy. What is the thinking of our hearts as we think about others, those who are different than us, Do we travel to them because God has traveled to us? And I'd suggest to you it is possible for us to go years and years and years and to be disengaged with the heart of God. There's the overlooked new person in church. We don't travel toward them. There's the the one who needs to feel enfolded or welcomed, extended hospitality. We do not extend it to them. C.S. Lewis cleverly observed that it's easier to pray for a bore than to go visit him. <laughs> See, he was on to the human our hearts, welcoming someone, someone who's not like you, someone who is not like the friends you currently have. It's very simple, isn't it? And then the, it's interesting is how uh, we don't travel their way, but, but we do like to acknowledge how busy we are. So it's not nice. I mean, to be busy. It's sort of a convenient thing. After all, we secretly are glad. Below deck, we think, I'm glad I'm busy. No one can detect I'm traveling far from God, but I'm busy. My heart can't be seen by anyone. Who would expect me to do anything more? I'm, I'm busy. I don't have to travel in any particular direction. Distraction also isn't such a bad thing. You're, you're pushed and pulled all sorts of different ways, and your heart is saying, Lord, I intend to hear you, but you understand. You understand, right? So there's a, a disconnect in the prophet's heart. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. Point one, okay. Point two. There is the pursuit of the heart. Verses four and five, God causes a great storm, a great wind to come upon the sea, a mighty tempest, as the text says. And now the book of Jonah really is a picture book of God's providence. You heard the little children here saying it's kind of silly. You you can't run from the presence of God. That response here was exactly the response that adults were supposed to have when they heard the book of Jonah. That's silly. Five-year-old, that's silly. Adults, 
That's silly. Isn't it silly? What's interesting about adults is that we, we work and we have all these machinations in our mind and we work the obvious point of the text. Ah, we try to avoid it. We just do. We just do. We just, I don't know. And we go some other place. God overrules. <laughs> God overrules his little prophet and just blows on the on the sea, and now the, the sovereignty of God, which knows no limits, obviously, now is going to be Jonah's experience, and God overrules Jonah's sinfulness by stopping him. That's how you were saved, by the way. God overrules your sinfulness by stopping you. It's the greatest thing. It's, talk about mercy being constructive. That's great stuff. And so that's how you came to believe in Jesus Christ. And the storm represents God's overruling of this smug prophet's intent. There's no way to avoid God any longer. And God, in his mercy, does not let us get the destinations we desire. So everyone that God uses, he humbles and if you were raised in a Christian home and, and, uh, and you were, there were limits put on your behavior, you should, you should praise God for your parents. But remember what your heart wanted to do? Your feet just couldn't get you there? Garrison Keillor talks about how he was raised in the farm out somewhere in Minnesota. And he says that all the sin was in the city, but we couldn't get to it. <laughs> so he says, but we were raised on a farm, so we had sweet corn. Meaning there's another place you can indulge your your sinful tendencies. Everyone God uses, he humbles. Do you say in your heart, does the preacher say in his heart, every day, I wouldn't be here for the grace of God. Thanks for stopping me. Thanks for stopping me. I didn't get it. I have no instincts for you. Jonah would not be able to say to the Ninevites, yeah, well, when God told me to come to your fair city, why, I, I jumped at the chance. He couldn't say it. Out of deep humility, he would experience God's mercy toward him, and out of that mercy, he would eventually become a preacher. Psalm 119.75 says that, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. And underneath that boat, somewhere is this large creature waiting for its moment, waiting for the outline of, a, of, an, of something on the surface that looks like a nice snack. And God is preparing a way for his wayward prophet. And he uses the troubled consciences of these sailors to say, wake up, what is going on with you? And it's quite ironic that Jonah is so content in his decision that he's pictured or characterized as one who's a deep sleeper. That's that guy, when we go through five hours of turbulence on the plane, the guy next to me slept all the way through it. What is up with you? A deep sleep. So, God is disrupting the sleeping prophet. 
who seems to be pretty happy with his decision, his grid of justice. And God intends for you to provide the means to get you to the destination that he has for you. And God has provided for you the means of grace, life in the church, fellowship groups where you're praying and studying God's word in a more intimate way, the Lord's Supper. The Lord has provided for you the means of grace to get you to the destination, essentially the enjoyment of eternal life already expressed through the life and ministry of his church. The calling and the means to get there are linked together. Hang around a missionary who's convinced they're called to Papua New Guinea or something. Watch, listen to what they say. I'm called, and now it's just a matter of the details. They're convinced that the means to get there come along with the calling. So God is pursuing this heart of the prophet, and he wants Jonah to be reversed in his direction and to experience the mercy of God for a pagan nation personally, and God is committed to that. And so, Christian, let me address, I don't know anyone specifically here, and that's, that's good, but is there a smugness in your heart? This jumps out of the text at us. Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan, writes these words, Christian, though you do not break forth into a flame of scandal... Yet you have no cause to boast. For there is such sin raked up in the embers of your nature, you have the root of bitterness in you, and would bear as hellish fruit as any if God did not either curb you by his power or change you by his grace. May God give us a deep work to show us the disconnect in our hearts and to show us what he does to disrupt our smugness. And then thirdly, there is a crisis that exposes the heart. Now, obviously, our circumstances can expose our hearts. We go through difficult times. We have made uh, foolish decisions, perhaps, and it's led to a, a hardship we're experiencing, and that can train us and teach us, no doubt about it. But we are tough creatures, and uh, we can get back on our feet, we can weather the storm, have a little positive thinking, and uh, get, back, get back and going in the game. But the conscience needs to be awakened at a deep, deep level. You see, there has to be a crisis that exposes the heart, and then at the same time, when the heart is exposed, you're not just left there, you're shown a cross. You're not just told to repent, you're told to have faith. You see, they say that repentance is the, the tear of it's the tear in the eye of faith. I've been loved so well. Jonah is convinced that what's going on in his heart can be hidden. But God uses a storm to, to awaken the sailors and ultimately to point out that the one who looks so peaceful and so just like a regular guy is actually the one who's been disobedient to the living God. Now, for us, the storm looks like this. The storm that comes upon us is the law of God. 
the law of God where Romans 3.19 says that the whole world is held accountable through the law of God, that we have no reason to boast, that we have no righteousness, that we have no place to go, we have no works that will justify us. This is the storm that God puts upon the conscience. And now we cry out, save me, for your law has revealed my heart. There's a small little book called Note to Self by an author named Joe Thorne. And he says here, to keep your heart is the primary business as a Christian. And it cannot be done with passing interests or any small amount of energy. It requires the consistent use of all the means of grace. You must make the most of worship, scripture, prayer, and the church gathered in all its forms with an aim at keeping your heart and growing in grace. If you are doing any less than this, you are keeping up appearances, but not your heart. And you know that the heart is what God is primarily interested in. Hearts that are broken over sin, healed by God's forgiving grace, and consequently filled with love for our Redeemer God. The book note to self. Jonah's outlook is completely self-referential. His arms are folded. He's got a sense of justice. And, of course, he has a tiny view of the nations and of God's capacity for mercy. Christian, is, is God working in you to get you out of your entire framework for what should or shouldn't be happening in the lives of other people? Are you having to go through many, many options decisions, choices, but the will of God is somewhere down at 12 or 13 on the list. You see, the will of God for Jonah was not an instinctive response where he was self-suspicious and trust was coming out of his heart. He had a case against God. This is what we inherited from Adam. A fundamental, repeated often in the pulpit here, a fundamental distrust in the goodness of God. And so we go through all these other options, and then finally we're stuck. Our heart's been exposed. We repent, and now we must come back to the living God. And God, in his mercy, does not get tired of us day after day or week after week going through that. I love the saying from Winston Churchill who said of the United States... America will do the right thing after she has exhausted every other possibility. That's me, Miss Jonah. Jonah in the whale, in the fish, whatever it was. Jonah 2.8 says this. 2.8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Crisis can be the instrument to bring about awareness of our need. But God brings the crisis of his law to bear upon our conscience and thus drives us to his son. And we are, the, the ultimate product of God's mercy in us is love. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. 
And so God, to illustrate the point, gave us the whole book of Jonah to illustrate his insistence on his own way. So, what really is exposed in the crisis of Jonah? What really is going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Human love is going to fail. If left to human love, the human love of the preacher, or even the love of the church, you would never taste salvation. Paul says that love never fails. Of course, if we have that kind of love, it's deeply rooted in divine love. Human mercy usually just extends to our friends. We just tend to forgive our friends. It's hard for us to forgive and pray for our enemies. At the divine command, we hide, we pretend we are like Jonah. We need a better prophet than Jonah. We don't need a reluctant prophet. We need an eager and willing prophet. We need someone to come with divine love who has nothing to hide, has no place to run. He has everything to reveal. God, the Apostle Paul says to us in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need someone to come who is unafraid to travel to the destination of the cross. In order to reveal the love of God for sinners, for Ninevites. To know Jesus is to move with him. To travel to the destinations he goes. It is the place where the self dies but steadfast love, Jonah 2.8, Jonah 2.8, steadfast love is embraced. Jonah would say, in the belly of the fish, that this steadfast love was better than any of his plans. Ultimately, it is the prayer of Jesus Christ that is a prayer for the nations that are in darkness even right now. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is that compelling love that drives God to send Jonah to the Ninevites. They do not fully realize the great and severe consequences of their evil. And God, in his constructive mercy, comes toward people like that. And until judgment day falls, this is our gospel-driven God. And we are called to travel with him. May the destinations he calls us to be not overly complex. Be, be not just great cities somewhere else, but just across the room. Just simple acts of obedience. May we be grateful for how God stops us and how he is creating in us a heart for himself, a love for his mercy. And he does this while we look at that great prophet he sent, Jesus Christ, who willingly came, suffered, completed his work for us, and now through the Spirit we have access to him. 
and we have access to the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. What a privileged people we are. Let's pray. Those who pay regard to idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Father, thank you that you are moving among all our hearts that are, are like Jonah's. Thank you that you are not letting us get to the destinations we would desire. And so, Lord, move among us. So move that we could say that it is only by your mercy that I speak and live and have my being. Father, may we not discount your patience toward this world. May we not smugly go about our way thinking we understand how things should be. Father, give me humility to believe that as I go through my day. Thank you for your gospel that opens up to us not just tasks to do, but reveals to us your heart. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Before we close with this last song,